0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and no, it's not our regular music this week because this is our winter storytelling special. Today's story celebrates 50 years of space exploration with a love letter to NASA.
2: 1977, the first of the voyages liftoff. off, September the second, with 55 hellos, bonjour, ciao, niao, shalom, hello, hello. We want to say hello, we want to say hello to you. 1979, a flyby, Voyager One flying by Jupiter, the scientists excited. They discover one of Jupiter's moons, Io, is the most volcanic body in the solar system. It's turning itself inside out. It's the Maria Callas of the solar system.
1: J o. Callahan tells the story of America in space. It's forged in the stars. On this week's Living on Earth, stick around.
0: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Fraser Performance Studios at WGBH Boston, this is a special holiday edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, began its countdown to celebrate its 50th anniversary, the space agency made special contact with renowned storyteller Jay O'Callaghan and handed him this mission, should he choose to accept it, write a love letter to NASA. Well, enamored with space exploration, as many of us are, Jay was not only honored, but also game. He spent a year and a half studying astronomy and interviewing current and retired NASA personnel all across the country. And now living on Earth is thrilled to present for our winter storytelling special, Jay O'Callahan and the broadcast performance of his love letter to NASA, Forged in the Stars. Welcome, Jay.
2: T-5 Four, three, two, one. Liftoff. We have liftoff. About 18 months ago, I was in a conference room, NASA headquarters, Washington, D.C. I was excited because I'd been commissioned to create this story, NASA's 50th anniversary, and Ed Hoffman, who runs a leadership program, said your job is to write a love letter. Well, how do you write a love letter to an administration? But still, it was freeing. I flew off, Johnson Space Center, Houston, manned flight, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Pasadena, unmanned flight. And I wondered, will they be patient for these interviews? Scientists, astronauts, engineers. They were not only patient, they're in love with their work. They love to talk. I came home with a thousand pages of interviews. Emails, taking this course in astronomy, reading 30 books, but what's the story? Then I remembered one of the interviews at Johnson Space Center with interns. These young people, college students who are at NASA college all the way through. This fellow Cecil Shy Jr. He was a wiry young fellow. He said, "When I was a kid, I loved to make these toy cars with motors. I was good at it." Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, there was a career night. He said, I went in and there was a model of the Mars Rover. I said, I can do that, why not? And then Cecil said, I think the kids all over the world going to sleep, looking at the stars, thinking, I want to go there. And Cecil says, why not? And I love that, why not? Why not make a love story? Everyone I interviewed said they loved working at NASA. I thought, I'll invent two characters, and they sprang to mind, Kate and Jack, in love, but something's gone wrong, and they will tell true stories of NASA. And so, my love letter to NASA is forged in the stars. The time is late October 2007. The place is Boston, Massachusetts, on a bright, windy Friday morning. A young woman, Kate de Cordova, was running down a sloping sidewalk. She had a red sock cap on, black hair streaming up behind. She was singing, Here Comes the Sun, checked her watch. 8.30, as long as she made the next trolley to Boston, she'd be on time for mechanical engineering. No one was late for mechanical engineering. As she ran, she smelled some of the salt air. It reminded her last night she'd been putting some salt in the boiling spaghetti water. Her apartment mate, best friend, Cynthia Moss, was listening to blind Willie Johnson singing Dark as the Night, and the phone had rung. Kate, it's Jack. She was shocked, delighted, Jack Carver. Six months ago, last April, she had called their engagement off. Here he was on the phone. Kate, something exciting has happened. Jack Carver. Son of a mean, lobsterman, Jack, big, powerful guy, getting a PhD in astrophysics, MIT. But when he was nervous or excited, he stuttered. Kate, you you know the MIT Sunday Science Series. A Russian scientist can't make it. So my thesis advice, I thought you and I could do the program on NASA. It's his 50th. You know, it's our generation... You've been an intern four times, Kate, there, and he's going to get the globe. Jack, you don't have to talk me into it. This is great. When is it? It's Sunday, three weeks from now. I can't, Jack. I got the graduate record exams. That's Saturday. I'm sorry, Jack. I can't study and prepare a program. Sorry. As she ran this morning, the trolley passed her by. It would stop 20 yards ahead. She had to get the trolley, so she lengthened her stride. Ten yards from the trolley, a yellow maple leaf came down. She reached out, the wind took it up, and she took a chance. And she leapt way up and caught it. She sprinted, but the driver was closing the door. Someone said, wait! Kate leapt onto the trolley. She got out her cell phone. She called Jack. Jack, it's Kate. I've changed my mind. I'll do the program at MIT. Great, great, great. What happened? I caught a leaf. (laughs) Never mind, we'll get, we'll get Cynthia to come. Don't get Cynthia, she'll cause trouble. She's still wearing the green wig. She wears it to earth science class. <laughs> Jack, listen, what am I supposed to do? All right. My thesis advisor saw the play you wrote. He said you come at a slant. You do three 12-minute sections, men's space. I will finish with a lecture, 20 minutes on men's space. All right, Jack. Next three Thursdays, come to my apartment. Seven o'clock, we'll run things back and forth. Thanks." Then she thought of what Jack had said, that he would give a 20-minute lecture. One of the reasons she had cut off the engagement is because Jack had turned into a critical bore just around the time he got that tweed jacket. (laughs) She hated that tweed jacket. She got busy emailing friends, professors, NASA colleagues asked one question. What do you remember most about NASA? Thursday night came. Jack was coming up. Three flights of stairs, an apartment, Jamaica plane. Kate was nervous in the kitchen because Jack could be so critical. Oh, Jack, I'm in the kitchen. Oh, what do you... How do you greet your former lover? Peck on the cheek, hug... Jack, there was Jack, this old windbreaker, and, oh, luckily he brought supper. There was a pizza box between them. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Jack. Thanks. Sit down. (laughs) We'll have the pizza later, Jack. I want to start right away. So imagine, Jack, I'm looking at the audience. I'm going to say to them, I'm an engineering student, I'm going to get a PhD, and I hope to work for NASA. I grew up in Oklahoma. When I was five years old, my dad and I were standing under the stars, and my dad, usually a very practical man, he ran a hardware store, he said, Kate, the blackness and the stars are not just above us, Kate, they're all around us, Kate. The Earth's just a ball moving, in the blackness and the stars, they're all around us. Well, I will never forget that moment. I'm going to tell you three true stories of NASA. This is the first story. In 1948, in a working class neighborhood in Oklahoma City, a five-year-old boy ran into the kitchen. Mom, I heard a voice coming from way up by the sun. What did it say? It said, I'm going to help people get to the moon. She said, that's a vision, JC. She said, that's a vision because they were Cherokee, Osage. Their story was they had come from the sky to the earth. you left to work for it, J.C. His Cherokee name was J.C. High Eagle. His name in the white world, Jerry Elliott. Working for the vision meant being good at math and physics. He did very well in high school. 1961, 18 years old, J.C. High Eagle, went to the University of Oklahoma. He was excited. Physics, mathematics. And he found that many of the students didn't want him there. What's the Indian kid doing here? Many of the professors did not want him. Listen, you're a fine young man, and it's not your fault, but nature hands out gifts indiscriminately, and your people don't have the mental capacity to be engineers and scientists. That hurt. But he had the vision. He stayed with it. He did well. 1966, he decided to go to graduate school, but there was no money. Stepfather died. So this young man, J.C. High Eagle, went down to the police station in Norman, Oklahoma, and said, I want to be a policeman. They gave him a test. He scored as high as anybody's ever scored. He became a full-time policeman and a deputy sheriff, which meant he could take two courses a semester. 9 in the morning, 10 in the morning was electrical engineering. He would wear his uniform to class with a loaded gun, but it was Oklahoma. <laughs> One day his mother called. There's a telegram for you. Open it. The draft board, you have to report for the physical. He passed another telegram. Open it, Mom. You have to report to boot camp in 15 days. It means Vietnam. Call your grandfather. He called his grandfather, a wise old man at his wheat farm. Granddad, it's J.C. I'm going to boot camp in 15 days. They won't take you. No, no, I I got the piece of paper. I don't believe in paper. They won't take you. Had a hard time getting the calf born last night. (laughs) I had to hitch the tractor up to get the calf. Granddad, I'm going to boot camp 15 days. They won't take you. Let me tell you about the calf. He went on and on about the calf. J.C. was furious. He said to his mother... He said, they won't take me. He went on and up, up the cafe. He's my dad. I'm with him. Fifteen days turned into fourteen, turned into thirteen, twelve, eleven, ten. Nine days, J.C. finished electrical engineering, coming down the corridor. Students were outside the dean's office in a line. And there was a sign NASA interviewing today. NASA. He got in line, said to the student in front, of him, what, do you, what do you got? You've got to have a NASA application, government application, and a resume, or he won't talk to you. He's got none of that. The line melts. He steps in in his uniform. NASA man says, i got a got a plane to catch. What do you want, officer? I want to put people on the moon. He looks at this cop. I'm working my way through grad school. Write down your name, your address. Don't call us. We'll call you. The NASA man is gone. Seven days.
1: We'll be back with storyteller J. O'Callaghan. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth's winter storytelling special. I'm Steve Kerwood. And now J. O'Callaghan continues his love letter to NASA, Forged in the Stars.
2: Six days to boot camp... Five days, four days, his mother called and said, J.C., there's a man, Bernie Goodwin from NASA. He said he talked to you. Here's his number. Call him. He calls Bernie Goodwin. J.C. Heigl, I looked into your record. You were a brilliant young man, J.C. You're full of fire, the kind of person we need here. In fact, I'd like you to start Monday morning. Manned Space Center, Houston, I can't. Why, the draft? Yes, sir, the draft. Well, J.C., you're a policeman. You know possession is nine-tenths of the law. You come, we possess you. (laughs) Yes, sir. He goes home, tells his mother. She says, call your grandfather. Granddad, I told you they wouldn't take you. (laughs) J.C. gets his guitar, borrows his mother's car. He heads to Houston. He's thinking, Granddad, must have negotiated a different fate for me with the Almighty. He is hired Monday morning as an engineer. A few weeks go by. Chris Kraft, who becomes the famed flight director, got a big cigar, comes over. How do you like it here, son? I love it. I love it. One thing, though. What's that? I'm used to reading, reading books to learn. What should I read? Son, we don't read books here. We write them. Soon enough, J.C. Heigel is writing the Agena Systems Handbook. J.C. Heigl is an engineer in Flight Control Center for all the Apollo missions. He is helping get people to the moon. Kate took a breath and said, Jack, that's the story. He achieved his vision. Jack, now tell me what you loved about the story. Jack said, well, one thing is it's too dramatic. Ah, tell me what else you loved about the story, Jack. (laughs) All right, I'm sorry, Kate. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I like the grandfather part. The only reason I'm at MIT is because of my granddad. I mentioned grad school once to my dad. He said, Jack, you won't fit in. You won't fit in. They're not your people. You won't fit in. So I went to granddad. He said, Jack, go to grad school. If you learn enough, you can take your lobster boat to the stars. So here I am, Kate, still trying to fit in. Let's have the pizza. Okay, next Thursday, do me a favor, Kate. Don't be dramatic. The following Thursday, Jack was coming up three flights of stairs. And Kate was very nervous because she knew she was going to be very dramatic. (laughs) So she thought about the best thing about Jack and the worst thing, and they both happened last April. Last April, Jack took Kate to Gloucester, borrowed a friend's lobster boat, they went way, way out to sea. Stars are bright, the sea was rough. This is Jack's world. Kate was terrified. Kate, Kate, I'm going to tell you a story that began billions of years ago. Jack condensed the story. I'm scared, Jack. All right, Kate. You know Jupiter, Kate. Jupiter's so big, you could put 1,200 Earths in the volume of Jupiter. You know the red spot on Jupiter? It's a storm that's been raging 300 years. It's twice the size of the Earth. The first time I saw you, I had a red spot in my heart. I love you. Marry me. Well, of course, she said yes. Two days later, they were stuck in traffic in East Cambridge, going to a departmental party. Jack hated those. He had the tweed jacket on. (laughs) Kate said, Jack, I love it. That Because of the solar wind, the whole solar system is in a bubble. Kate, it is a heliosphere he Leo'sphere, not a bubble. Get the language right. (laughs) Grow up. Jack, we have talked about that tone of voice for a year. I'll take the subway home. Here's your ring. It won't work. She got out and slammed the door. She was thinking that as Jack came into the kitchen with that old windbreaker. Kate, I was thinking of something. You brought a Claire's. Oh, Claire's, thank you, Jack. Sit down, Jack. I'm going to do a scene. I think you're going to love it. I want Armstrong to tell a story, so I've invented somebody to tell it to. You invented a character, Jack! It's a literary device to help me tell the story. This is the idea. Armstrong's going into a nursing home. There's an old man in a wheelchair. He's all bent over. He's a retired admiral. He's a friend of Armstrong's. Armstrong has come several times, but now the admiral has no idea who Armstrong is. And the admiral doesn't talk anymore. The admiral's wife, a retired professor, asked Armstrong to give it one more try. Admiral Armstrong, pointing for duty, sir. Admiral Armstrong, pointing for duty, sir. The old man lifts his head up a little, a little more. Navy pilot? Yes, sir. Combat duty? Yes, sir. North Korea, sir. I was down 500 feet once, sir, in my... Wing got sliced off. I had to eject. The only reason I'm here, sir, is the wind blew me into a rice paddy instead of the sea. Now, what's your last assignment? Moon, sir. Moon, where's that? The moon, sir. The moon. Three of us. Up to the moon in three days, sir. Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and I. The question is, can we land on the moon? So, two of us, Buzz and I, we we float into this lunar module. Lunar module? What kind of plane is that? It's an unusual flying machine. It's like a cockpit. Switches, gauges everywhere. The walls, they're no thicker than a sheet of aluminum foil. Triangular window for me, one for Buzz. We're 50,000 feet above the moon and we're harnessed to the floor standing. Why are you standing? Two chairs, sir, would weigh 600 pounds. The lighter we are, the less fuel. Oh, I should say, Tom Stafford, two months before, he was 50,000 feet above the moon. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Stafford, I know that name, Stafford. Academy? Yes, sir. His mother, Stafford's mother, came to Oakland. Oh, man, a covered wagon, you know that? I did not, sir. Well, Stafford didn't land, Admiral, because his lunar module was too heavy. So Buzz and I go down 40,000 feet, and then we're lurching like that, sir. Like a drunk, like a drunk, sir. The radar kicked in. The computer doesn't agree. The radar's right, and Buzz is trying to get the computer to agree. So we're lurching like this, and then, boo! This is a master alarm, sir. This is serious. It could be an abort. Houston says it's a go on that alarm. Down we go, sir. And now the, the problem's snowballed. Our computer, Admiral, is cutting out. Houston's getting nothing. They need crucial information. Then it cuts back in, cuts out. They get just enough information. Down we go, sir. We get to 7,500 feet. We tilt like this, and, Admiral, I can see the sea of tranquility. 7,500 feet. We get down 3,000 feet, sir. We're going slow now, 48 miles an hour. 1,000 feet, and we are in trouble. The computer is flying us blindly into a crater. It's big as a soccer field, sir. We're going to bust up on the rocks, so I take over. I'm flying this. About time, Armstrong. I'm flying this. We call it the Eagle, sir. I get down 220 feet. I'm skimming over these boulders, looking for a place to land. There's a place that's no good. No, it's no good. My heart is pounding, Admiral. 90 seconds of fuel. Then I find a place over here. 60 seconds of fuel. We're at 100 feet. And the rocket blast... Is stirring up the dust, and I can't see, Admiral. 30 seconds of fuel. We get down to 50 feet, Admiral, and now we're drifting backwards. I don't know why, and I'm wrestling with a sideways motion. We're going down slower and slower. The contact light is on. We are on the moon. I turn to Buzz. We haven't shaved in days. Got these bubble helmets, and we shake hands. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. And then we're supposed to go to sleep. Sleep, man, you're on the moon. <laughs> exactly, sir. We couldn't go to sleep. We asked permission to get out there. They said, fine. It takes a long time. There's a checkoff list, and you've got this oxygen pack. So I'm doing that, and I look up. There's a circular window, Admiral. I look up, and way up there, there's the earth the size of a silver dollar. It's blue, and it's white, and it's beautiful. And I put on these boots. It'll give me traction. I thought of what I might say. You hadn't thought about it? I'm a pilot admiral. The way you were, my job is to land and get off. It's not to say something. So finally, I'm ready to open the hatch. I wouldn't want to be on the moon. Why is that, sir? Mosquitoes. (laughs) No, sir, it's it's a vacuum. I made a joke. I made a joke. (laughs) You got no sense of humor? Go ahead. I open the hatch, Admiral, and I pull a D-ring so the television camera is turned on. Hundreds of millions of people all over the Earth watching. It's awkward, I have to back out. It's a sixth gravity, so I don't weigh much, but it's awkward, I go down the ladder, and the last rung of the ladder, it's a three-foot jump. The eagle has these four legs, and at the bottom of each leg, what we call a pad. It's like a big, shallow soup bowl. The eagle has four legs they didn't collapse because we had landed so gently. So I jumped three feet down. Then I jump back up to make sure I can do it. I jump back on the pad, and I'm holding onto the ladder. One of the scientists said the moon dust might be a, a mile deep. I don't want to go down a mile. So I put one foot on the moon, it's solid. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Pretty dull. What would you have said, sir? Well, my wife liked Thoreau. You know, He said something like, uh, I didn't come to change things. I came to wake the neighbors up. That would have been very good, Admiral, very good. <laughs> I put both hands on the landing gear, and I put my second foot on the moon. Then I let go. That took guts. That took guts, Armstrong. My wife signaling. She wants to talk to you. The admiral's wife, maybe ten years younger, beautiful woman, she said, Neil, I, I remember the day the three of you lifted off. I'll never forget it. The sound, but mostly that white fire that lifted you. You know what I think that fire was made of? I think, no, I don't mean combustion. I think it was made of the passion and the effort the courage of 600,000 people, the scientists, the engineers, the secretaries, the managers. And the fire that lifted you off, I think it was made of the the hopes of hundreds of millions of people all over the world that you'd make it. And that fire was made by scientists, by Einsteins, but it was also made by every child who's ever wondered, where does a frog go in the winter? And how could there be a bit of red and green inside an icicle? Why does a crow sound different from a blue jay? The fire that lifted you off was made by Amelia Earhart and the Wright brothers and Lindbergh and Leonardo da Vinci. It was made by people all the way 40,000 years ago who took torches and went into caves and made paintings. Yes, ma'am. And ma'am, we came back. NASA sent us to countries all over the world and people would run up, ma'am, and they would never say, you did it. They would say, we did it, we did it. Well, I'm strong, you're fine, man. One thing, though, yes, sir. Work on your sense of humor, yes, sir. <laughs> My wife will see you out. They went out in the hall. Neil, I, I felt his fire again today. Thank you. Well, oh, Jack, that's it. What do you think? Kate, I asked you last week not to be dramatic. (laughs) Jack, I've studied some theater, and this is who I am, Jack. Now run something by me, Jack. Now, Kate, I'm not ready. I'm going to run along. We're taking a Claire. I'll see you Thursday. The next Thursday, Jack came up into the kitchen with his tweed jacket on. She said, Jack, sit down. I'm going to run a short piece by, then you run all all you want, all right? So this is what I'm going to say, Jack. I'm going to say, in 1951, in Columbia Point in Boston, there was a three-year-old girl on a tricycle. She was an adventurer. Her name was Krista. Jack, let me finish. Krista bounced onto the street. She was going to bike all the way to the big houses far away. Well, a neighbor brought her home, Krista, very close to her dad. They loved music. When she was 21, she married Steve McAuliffe. Krista McAuliffe truly blossomed in her early 30s. She was teaching American history, Concord High School in New Hampshire. She was raising money for the hospital. and the Y, she volunteered on the one hand to teach catechism, on the other for Planned Parenthood but her greatest focus was her children. She wrote in her journal, how can two kids be so different? Scott is five, and he's so sensitive, last night he turned Sesame Street off because a cartoon cat was eating a cartoon mouse. (laughs) And Caroline is three. She doesn't ask, she demands. Krista McAuliffe applied to be the teacher in space. She wrote in her application, I developed a course called The American Woman and discovered that The journals of ordinary people tell a fuller story of history. And like the pioneers on the Conestoga wagons, I'll keep a journal as a pioneer in space. Krista McAuliffe was chosen to be the teacher in space. The challenger was to lift off January 28, 1986. The night before, there was a fierce argument among managers, engineers... And some of the engineers said, you cannot lift off tomorrow. It's going to be freezing in Florida. It's got to be at least 53 degrees, or the O-rings might not expand. There'd be a catastrophe. The engineers were not listened to. The next morning, January 28th, at 11.38, the Challenger lifted up. Standing there, Krista's parents, they were freezing. They watched the Challenger lift up. It was magnificent. Ed Corrigan watched it. Grace Corrigan watched it go up and up for a minute. And then the flash of yellow and a fireball. And out of the fireball came debris from the Challenger. And then there was a tower of smoke and silence. And Ed Corrigan, Krista's dad, said, She's gone. She's gone. Jack said, Why the hell would you do that? We got one hour, you're not talking about death. Jack, I am going to talk about Krista McAuliffe. Millions of people will never forget the moment she died. I'm going to talk about her. Jack, Krista is the ordinary person. She's all of us, maybe the best of all of us. But I'm going to talk about her. This is exploration. It's dangerous. Magellan set out with five ships. He died along the way. Did you know that? One of his ships got back. Jack, I have to have the courage to tell the truth. This is science. Oh, Kate's got to have the courage to tell the truth. Oh, Kate. Kate, we're in love two and a half years. And you say, here's your ring, Jack. It didn't work. You didn't have the guts to talk it out. You didn't have the guts, Jack. I was scared. I am scared. Jack, my mother was 18. She was a brilliant pianist. She thought she could be a great pianist. Dad said, take a couple of years off. Let me get the hardware store started. She did. I was born. My brother was born. She never got back. You know, Dad's had a terrible stroke. His mind doesn't work. He doesn't talk. She wheels him into the hardware store every day. That's her life. And her one day at home, Sunday, she washes the walls. I think she does it to make them disappear, Jack. Kate... We're on Sunday, 7 o'clock. So be there at 6 o'clock for a sound check.
1: Find out what happens at MIT with Jack and Kate in just a few moments. We'll be back with storyteller Jay Callahan. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
0: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: You're listening to a special storytelling edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Jail Callahan concludes his story, Forged in the Stars.
2: The next night, Friday night, Jack was in his apartment. There was a knock and the door was flung open. And in came Cynthia Moss, Kate's best friend and apartment mate. Cynthia Moss was not to be trifled with. She came forward eye to eye with Jack. Jack, I don't know what went on between the two of you last night. But Kate is very upset, and she's got the GREs tomorrow. I asked her, why, why why, is she doing this with you? She said that for the first time, we can see the Earth from afar, and it's tiny and precious. For the first time, we see the solar system from afar, tiny and precious. For the first time, we're stretching into the universe. She said if we could take that in, no telling how big our vision might become. I just want to know, what are you going to do Sunday night at MIT, Jack? Well, Cynthia, for your information, I might read a complete list of the accomplishments of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and explain a few in a way that even you can understand them. You condescending ass. What happened to you? You used to be such fun, Jack. You'd come up the stairs singing, we called you the Pavarotti Lobsterman. I know what you're going to do at MIT Sunday night. You're going to come out on the stage with your tweed jacket and your fake half glasses. You're going to hide behind the podium. You're going to stutter till we're sorry for you. Then you're going to bore us. Well, I'm bringing bringing celery. You bore us, I'm going to eat the celery. And if you dare to condescend, I will throw the celery at you. Don't ruin this for Kate. Sunday night at MIT, quarter of seven, Kate peeked out and there was a good house, including college students, high school students. She was nervous, but excited. She felt she had done well in the GREs. Kate won the audience over, telling them about being five years old and her dad saying, Kate, the blackness and the stars, not just above us, they're all around us, Kate, all around us. And then the audience was intrigued to hear about this vision of a five year old Cherokee boy. Kate told the story. Then she told them J.C. Heigel had been an engineer 40 years at NASA and had established a foundation to encourage Native Americans to become engineers, scientists. They had no idea how difficult that first moon landing was. And even more important, they didn't realize people around the world said, We did it! And they realized this is NASA's accomplishment, but it's also humanity's accomplishment. And finally, they were honored. She told the truth about Krista and the Challenger. And now it's up to Jack. Jack came out on the stage, tweed Jack at half glasses, stood behind the podium... Ladies and gentlemen, I I may read a complete list of the accomplishments of the the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He took off the half-glasses, he took off the jacket, he stepped in front of the podium. Sounds wicked boring, doesn't it? (laughs) My first memory of the stars is when I was five or six with my granddad. A lobster boat, four in the morning, way out Portland, Portland, Maine. My granddad said, some people go to offices. My office mates are the stars. My granddad taught me celestial navigation. I found out I was good with numbers. My dad taught me piloting. Physics is the push and pull of things. It's like lobstering. Push the pot out, pull it in. And you've got to pay attention in both. I'm going to tell you one One story about the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I chose this because it's a marriage of imagination and science. That's what NASA does best, imagination and science. My story begins 1965, early in space exploration, with a fellow named Gary Flandro, Caltech student. He was also working for JPL. So he's in the office, and my gosh, he says, he realizes the outer planets, the gas giants—Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune—are going to be lined up on one side of the sun in a way they will not be lined up again for 176 years. They have not been lined up this way since Jefferson's time. And Flandre thinks this is a this is this is the time for a grand tour of the outer planets. He knows all about gravity assist, meaning you. You get a spacecraft coming behind a planet and the gravity of that planet flings it forward at a tremendous speed. A grand tour. Now remember, this is 1965, early in space exploration. Mars, it is closest to the Earth, 35 million miles. When you are talking about Neptune, you're talking about 2.5 billion miles. Is this possible? Nobody knows. And Congress says it's too expensive. Cut it back. Maybe you can go to Jupiter and Saturn. That's it. No grand tour. So the engineers and scientists get busy. And they're very careful, because what if they're so good, the spacecraft, called the Voyagers, is very small, 1,800 pounds, got a great big, looks like a television disc. What if they build them so carefully they do get to Jupiter and Saturn, they go to Uranus? 1977, they got to be launched. That's where imagination comes in. Carl Sagan, the astronomer, says, why not send a message with these voyagers? What kind of message? He talks to Lewis Thomas, a biologist. Thomas says, why not send all a buck? And Thomas says, no, that would be boasting.
1: <laughs>
2: sound, the idea of sending sound. How would we do it? On a copper record that would last a million years, the color will be gold. We'll call it the golden record. What sounds? Well, send hello in 55 languages, hello. And sounds of the earth, yes, yes, frogs and whales and insects and wind and thunder and, and a kiss and a cry of a baby and Morse code and music, Beethoven and Bach and Mozart. Then they call across the country to the World Music Center. And Mr. Brown says, you mean these two things are going to the stars? Then you've got to send Kisa by Kirkar singing Jahan hat Ho. Who's that? Kisa by Kirkar. Born in Calcutta, beloved in India. Get a record of her. Now the door is opening to music of the world. Alan Lomax, who spent his life collecting ethnic music, says, listen to this, it's a Bulgarian shepherdess song. Sound of people who had enough to eat for the first time. Now the door is flung open. Australian horn and totem music. Pygmy girl's initiation song. Melanesian panpipes, Chinese chin music. Japanese flute music, but all this takes time. There's three days left. The list has got to be closed. They call across the country. Mr. Brown, we can't find a record of of this woman, Kisa by Kirkar. Find it. They've tried everything. Two days left. They call Mr. Brown, find it. So someone calls Indian restaurants all over. One of them says, yes, yes. In New York City, Lexington Avenue in the 20s is an appliance store run by an Indian family. Go into the appliance store, you'll see a card table with a mattress cover. Underneath the card table is a carton. In the carton is a record of her singing that song. (laughs) They get it. And President Carter sends a message. He says, this is a present from our small planet. Maybe we're growing up. I say to myself, instead of taking things from the universe, we're giving something back. So in August... 1977, the first of the voyages lift off. September the second, with 55 hellos, bonjour, ciao, niyao, shalom, hello, hello, we want to say hello, we want to say hello to you. 1979, a flyby, Voyager 1 flying by Jupiter. The scientists excited. They discover one of Jupiter's moons, Io, is the most volcanic body in the solar system. It's turning itself inside out. It's the Maria Callas of the solar system. <laughs> and Europa, another moon of Jupiter, is a crust of ice. But underneath that crust of ice may be a salt sea bigger than the Atlantic and Pacific put together. There may be life. The voyagers sailed on. hello, hello. Saturn, and then Uranus, Uranus, four exciting days looking down at Uranus, this blue-green pearl of a planet, January 24th to 28th, 1986, and on the fourth day, January 28th, on the east coast, the Challenger explodes, the Voyager sails on. The Berlin Wall falls. The Voyager sails on. Hello, hello. Nelson Mandela released from prison after 27 years. The Voyager sails on. Hello, hello. Two Russians and one American live 136 days in space. Living in space has begun. Cooperating in space has begun. Hello, hello, we want to say hello. Hubble telescope is launched. Blurred vision. Joke of late night television. The blurred vision is corrected. And through the Hubble we see objects 12 billion light years away. We see the dance of the universe as it's never been seen. And the Voyager sails on. Hello, hello, we want to say hello. We want to say hello to you. February 14th, 1990, Voyager 2 is beyond Pluto, sends back a photo of our solar system. In that photo, the Earth is the size of the eye of a goldfish. It's a speck. And on that speck is everything we love, and the voyager sails on. Hello, hello, the Clinton years. Princess Diana dies in the year 2000. My dad, a lobsterman, got off his lobster boat, crossed the street, he collapsed. He was dead of a heart attack. My dad and I, we had our ups and downs, but I loved him and I'm shaken. And the Voyager sails on. 9 11, the whole country is shaken and the Voyager sails on. Hello, hello, I want to say hello. 2003, I come to MIT wondering, am I good enough to get a PhD? I'm scared to death. I meet a young woman, engineering student, we fall in love. And the Voyager sails on. Hello, hello, I want to say hello. 2004, two rovers set down on Mars, spirit and opportunity. They're expected to go three months and then stop because the solar panels will be covered with dust. Surprise! Surprise! The wind on Mars blows the dust off. Spirit and opportunity are going as I speak. Hello, hello. The spacecraft Cassini begins to orbit Saturn. We see the rings in Saturn as clearly as you see the grooves in a record. It's a pilot project of NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Italian Space Agency. Hello, hello. I get engaged. I'm a stuffed shirt, and she calls it off. And the voyager sails on, Hello, hello. My left fist is the sun. My right fist is the earth, 93 million miles away. The voyagers are not even in the room. They're downtown. The voyagers are 10 billion miles from the sun. I'm sure you all know about the solar wind. It's really particles streaming out from the sun a million miles an hour and more. It forms a great bubble our whole solar system is in. Some people call it heliosphere. Bubble's a much better term. (laughs) In six or seven years, the voyagers are going to leave the bubble, go to interstellar space. They're going to reach the Oort cloud. In the year 26,000, they're going to make the closest approach to the star, Sirius, in the year 296,036. They're going to pass the 12 nearest stars in the year 1 million. And who knows, maybe some civilization will find one of the voyages and play the golden record, and they'll hear Kisar by Kirkar. They'll hear Pygmy Girls' Initiation Song, Melanesian Panpipe. They'll hear Louis Armstrong, Navajo Night Chant. They'll hear Chuck Berry. They'll hear Beethoven and Bach and Mozart and Stravinsky. And they'll hear Blind Willie Johnson singing, Dark Was the Night. And maybe they'll say these beings want to dance. And I think that'll be just about right. Seem seems to me what we've been doing the last 50 years is we've been dancing our way into the universe. Oh, well, Jack finished, and there was silence. Then there was an explosion of applause. Cynthia leapt up with her green wig, and her celery fell off her lap. <laughs> she ran up and threw her arms around Jack. It was three weeks later that Jack picked Kate up, and they went down to Gloucester. He borrowed his friend's lobster boat, and they went way, way out to sea. The stars were brilliant. The sea was calm. He took her by the shoulders and said, Kate, the stars and the blackness are not just above us, Kate. They're all around us, Kate. And Jack, they're inside us, all of the molecules in our bodies were forged billions of years ago in generations of stars. Jack, let's get married. You serious, Kate? Of course I'm serious. I'm scared, but I love you. We'll work it out. I've even thought about the wedding food. I want to have pizza and eclairs. (laughs) And Jack, I want to be married on Mars. (laughs) Well, Kate, I'll take you there in my lobster boat. What do you think of that? Jack, that would be perfect. And why not? Why not? Why not?
1: Storyteller Jay O'Callaghan with his NASA Commission story, Forged in the Stars. I want to thank you again, Jay. Thanks. <laughs> Our storytelling special today was recorded in WGBH's Frazier Performance Studios. Our engineers are Jane Pippick and Jeff Turton. Eileen Belinsky produced this program. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shris Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parekh. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. And from all of us here, Happy Holidays! Happy Holidays!
2: Happy
1: Holidays, may the calendar keep ringing. Happy Holidays to you.
0: The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.